starting today, we are starting on a series about membership, church membership. And, and throughout the series, we'll be talking about what that means, what it means to be a church member, what, what it means to be a, an elder, what it means to be a leader. What does it look like to be involved in church? Our hope is that throughout our discussions, you might find it to be very practically helpful to you as a good reminder of, of what exactly it is we do here. But as we start this week, it's important to first ask a far more foundational question about church. And that question isn't so much of, of what is church, but rather why. Why do we have church? In this day and age, when you can get online and find innumerable sermons preached by brilliant people, why do you need to come and listen to me? That seems like a little bit of a letdown. Why, when you already have Christian friends outside of these church walls, why do you have to come and sit with people that, let's face it, you either don't know, or oftentimes you don't really have anything in common with? Why do that? Why spend money? Why spend time? Why do all of these things that seem to offer fairly little payoff, at least from an earthly perspective? It's a vitally important question to ask. As we answer it, we will do so by examining the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And my hope is that we consider the words of Hebrews. We might walk away from your understanding that the church is, is by no means optional. Gathering together as a local church has always been essential to the perseverance of the saints. If you do not appreciate that, if you cannot see it, you inevitably will struggle far more than you could possibly imagine. And so as we begin, then let us begin by reading our text from today, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. If you have the ability, I ask you to stand out of reverence for the word of God. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. Please be seated. There is a certain simplistic joy that I find and perhaps you can find in the basic act of sitting around a campfire with friends or loved ones, especially on a cold night. Maybe a lot of you can appreciate this. If not, maybe most of us have at least experienced that. If you have experienced that, that simple setting, you know how, how that campfire, though small, really manages to touch on, on nearly all of our senses. For as we sit around a campfire, we, of course, can observe that, that unique glow that a flame lets off. We see it reflect off the faces of our loved ones. We see it light up a fairly small circle that surrounds us. As we sit beside that campfire, there is that unique scent that is let off by a fire. There is that unique, uh, that unique sound of the, the cracking and popping of logs as it continues to burn. And of course, most importantly, there is that warmth that just soaks into your skin. It is relatively simple, but, but it is an incredibly unique setting. 
If you've ever experienced that setting, you also know how quickly that light and that warmth and that joy is lost the moment you take more than two steps away. Especially on those particularly cold nights, it's amazing to realize once again just how dark and how cold the night has become while you have been sitting beside a warm fire with loved ones. This is an experience that is precious to us, or at least precious to me, and provides great joy. And I begin with that experience because in many ways it it mirrors the experience that we can face spiritually. For at one point in time, all of us who claim to be Christ professed faith in Jesus. And, And at that moment, we in essence gazed into that fire. We gazed upon the beauty, the light of Jesus. For those early days, we perhaps experienced a joy that we had never felt before. We experienced the warmth of companionship with other believers. And in the moment of sitting around the fire, we experienced something that, that is truly divine. Yet over time, through the course of various trials, various forms of suffering, that fire, that flame, that light begins to lose its brightness to many of us. And without realizing it, many of us fall into the temptation of of slowly backing away from it, slowly failing to look upon Jesus Christ, slowly failing to to appreciate the warmth that is offered, and slowly failing to appreciate the companionship that that small circle once offered you. We can do this assuming that those experiences can be implemented, it can be be, uh, replaced by other matters, by other means. But as we come to the book of Hebrews today, what we see is that that is far from the truth. From the text of Hebrews, we find an audience who themselves, once upon a time, had placed their faith in Jesus. Once upon a time, they had been entranced by the beauty of the gospel. But over time, as a result of suffering, they had begun backing away from that truth. They had begun backing away from one another, assuming they could find that warmth, that companionship, that life elsewhere. But the author of Hebrews comes in and says, no, no, you cannot. The author of Hebrews comes in and says, even if you may not realize it, you find yourself in a very cold, very dark, very dangerous place. And if you do not act very carefully, you will ultimately find judgment awaits. And so to help us avoid that bitter cold, to help us avoid that judgment, as we come to Hebrews 10, we find three basic exhortations, three exhortations that were vitally important for the believers in Hebrews to hear, and three exhortations that remain vitally important, essential to our own faith today. Exhortations that perhaps seem relatively basic at first glance, but exhortations that are deep and life-giving. My hope is as we examine these exhortations, we might walk away not simply with a greater appreciation and remembering Jesus Christ, but again a greater appreciation of what this is, of why it is such a blessing, why it is such a necessity to gather here continually. Before we examine those exhortations, though, let us begin in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together in this corporate setting today. God, I confess that oftentimes in getting ready for church and and getting dressed and getting kids ready and, and getting everything together, it is easy to overlook the significance of these gatherings. It's easy to treat this gathering in the same way we would treat any other day of the week. But God, that is so incredibly untrue when it comes to what exactly is happening here. For as we gather here corporately, we come before you as your body, as the body of Jesus. As we come before, here, before you today, we gather as this local picture of the gospel, God. As we gather here today, we are given an opportunity to experience warmth and compassion and encouragement. 
in a way that is unavailable outside of the church. And so God, as we consider the words of Hebrews today, I pray that we might walk away all the more encouraged, not simply to attend church, but all the more encouraged to, to truly be involved in one another's lives. God, I pray for those here who find themselves truly in the midst of a, of a cold, dark moment in their lives, God. A time in which you feel impossibly distant, a time in which they feel dead in their faith. I pray to use the words of Hebrews to reawaken their passion, to fan that flame again. I pray they walk away from here today all the more encouraged, all the more passionate for you, God. And as a body of believers, might we walk away from today again with a greater appreciation of what is being accomplished here. As always, we pray that you remove all distractions from us this morning, God. Might our minds be completely focused upon you, God. Might we do all of this to your glory, God. It's in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray all these things. Amen. As we begin our text in Hebrews 10, verse 19, we of course understand that, that we find ourselves towards the very end of this message, the very end of the letter. And so it's, it's good to understand that throughout the first ten and a half chapters already, the author of Hebrews has been making one long argument, one long exhortation, that in essence is the exhortation to return to Christ. Again, he writes to believers that are suffering greatly, who are discussing and it seems considering the option of leaving Christ behind and going back to their former way of Jewish faith. Time and time again, the author of Hebrews tells them, no, you cannot do that. That is not an option. You must remain true. As we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we in essence see that same argument played out yet again. And it begins with this first, perhaps most foundational command, The command to once again really look upon the light of Christ, appreciate the beauty and the unique nature of Jesus Christ. We see that beauty once again described and summarized in verses 19 through 22. And so if you would follow along with me again as we once read. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As the author begins this first exhortation, he of course presumes that you have an understanding of what life was like before Christ. For as he begins this text, he says, therefore, since since we now have this newfound confidence which again speaks to the fact that once upon a time we didn't have confidence. Where we now have access to God, once upon a time we didn't have that access to God. And the audience of Hebrews would have already been very familiar with this understanding. For these believers had had come, it seems, out of a primarily Jewish background. That is to say, most of the audience here were once believers, but, but Jewish believers. And so they had a a very healthy understanding of of what access to God looked like. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you too can have a basic understanding of what that limited access meant. For while access was provided, it was always put in very tight parameters, very tight restrictions. And so the people of God in the Old Testament could approach God, but only after their sins were purified through the sacrificial system. And so As a Jew, you had to regularly bring these sacrifices forward, but you couldn't perform the sacrifices on your own. No, you needed a representative. And so these Jews brought their sacrifices to these designated figures, these priests. And these priests had very specific restrictions, very specific laws of how that sacrifice was to be offered so as to ensure that God would then accept it. 
only having offered that sacrifice and followed this long list of rules then, was access granted. But of course, since you as a Jew were still sinful, since the sacrifice was just an animal, and since even the priest himself was a sinner, that access was always temporary. And so one sacrifice was never enough. You had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, go through all your celebrations, go through all your rituals, do these same steps over and over and over again, all the while knowing full well that nothing you could do was was quite enough, could never accomplish that which you really needed. For what you needed wasn't wasn't just a new sacrifice. You, You needed a new heart. You needed to be made new yourself for everything you touched was marred, was stained with sin. So throughout the Old Testament, you have these references to this greater need, this references to ultimately that heart transplant, that which is prophesied in passages like Ezekiel 36. We do not need to turn there this morning, but it is Ezekiel 36 that is referenced here in Hebrews 10 when he speaks of having our hearts sprinkled with water, our our bodies purified. He's, He's speaking of the fulfillment of everything that was missing under that old covenant. Now, While that was the old covenant, while that was life prior to Christ, we understand again that this newfound confidence has been introduced, and who has it been introduced through? Well, Jesus Christ. Again, this is summarized beautifully here in Hebrews chapter 10, for he says, we have have confidence to enter the holy place by what? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Throughout these first 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews has highlighted time and time again how how Jesus came as a perfect fulfillment of of all of those Old Testament means, all those Old Testament symbols. Jesus Christ came as, as the perfect representative, as the perfect high priest. Jesus Christ came as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ came and didn't just enter into a tabernacle on earth. Jesus Christ came and ultimately through his death, burial, and resurrection entered into that true tabernacle, heaven itself. And having entered into that true heavenly tabernacle, Jesus Christ now serves as our high priest still, representing us, giving us completely unlimited access before God. Having done that then, having accomplished that work, he gives these believers under a new covenant an access and an ability that was never found before. And so it makes sense in light of this newfound access that the author would say, you have the access, you have the ability, so so use it. You're able to approach God, so why would you not approach God? Well, the reason for that, in part, is because they failed to do exactly what our first exhortation speaks to. They, They had taken their eyes off Jesus. We'll explain this a little bit more later on in the message, but but for the time being, it seems that, that that beauty of Christ that glorious, unique light that only Christ can let off had begun to dim a little bit. And instead of of looking back to Christ and turning over Christ and considering every facet of the beauty of Christ, these believers had begun to look elsewhere. Assuming they could find that same beauty in in other methods, assuming they could find that that same beauty in, in maybe their old way of faith. But the author of Hebrews is telling them time and time again, no, you can't do that. Your old ways do not provide the access you needed. That access, that life, that light is found entirely, purely, only in Jesus Christ. And so throughout so much of the book of Hebrews, then you have this, this ongoing exhortation to, to look upon Christ, to think upon Christ, 
If you've not ever read through the book of Hebrews, I urge you to do so, for you see this, this multifaceted beauty of Christ. You walk away with this, this continually growing appreciation for just how unique Christ is, just how beautiful the gospel is, just how gloriously bright that light that it lets off is. And so speaking to these believers and speaking to us, the author says time and time again, the opportunity has been given to you to have access to, to God. You, you must simply choose to take advantage of that access. You must simply choose to look back to that light of Christ that you once were mesmerized by. This is the basis for all the other exhortations given. Now having said that, while the access is there, and while the light of Christ should always inspire the believer, the fact was that these believers had, had lost that sense of awe. These believers had lost a sense of, of appreciation for the beauty of Jesus. And there's a variety of reasons why this might have happened in terms of the Hebrews. One of the main reasons seems to be persecution. Again, we'll speak of this here in a moment, but, but after having placed their faith in Jesus, these formerly Jewish people were now open to the persecution that, that was unique for Christians at that time. In the midst of that persecution, it seems that the beauty of Christ, the, that unique quality of Christ, had, had lost some of its luster. And so it is no surprise that in light of their struggle that the flame had begun to die down, and perhaps it seemed as if they were on the verge of truly entering back into that dark and cold reality. Understanding that danger and understanding why they're struggling to see the light of Christ, then the author points to this second exhortation, which speaks not simply of the need to look upon the light of Christ, but, but to look beyond that, to remember the, that eternal hope that is found only in Christ. It is this experiential hope to which the author next looks in verse 23. Again, follow along with me as I read there. Hebrews 10:23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's a slight turn that the author of Hebrews is taking here, and it's a turn that I think oftentimes we fail to, to really appreciate. And I include myself in that failure. For oftentimes when we think of the glory of Christ, our minds go entirely to, to these intellectual doctrines, these doctrines of God's sovereignty, doctrines of, of election, doctrines of God's goodness, doctrines of, of these basic truths that are found in Scripture, things that we must believe, that we must understand, but doctrines that oftentimes can remain at a purely intellectual level. And oftentimes when we think of, of why we should love God or why we should worship God, our minds go entirely to that intellectual matter of the faith. And, and that intellectual side, that doc, those doctrinal truths are key. But when trying to inspire the believers in the book of Hebrews, the author looks beyond just those intellectual truths and he speaks more to an experiential hope. For again, he, he tells him to, to rekindle that, that eternal hope that lies within, rekindle that confession of hope that they once made. Now in our culture today, this word hope is used too much and it's been cheapened a little. For oftentimes when people speak of hope today, they speak of, in essence, just empty dreams. Right? They say, well, I hope things get better. But they have no reason to really think they'll get better. Well, I hope I make a lot of money someday, but that's really more of, I wish this would happen. And oftentimes when we think of hope, that is where our minds go. But when the author of Hebrews describes hope, or really when any of the Bible speaks of hope, they speak of something of, 
but it's far more concrete. Something that is real, something that is permanent. Namely, they speak of what we sung about earlier this morning. They sing about that eternal inheritance that always lies before us. And as the author of Hebrews references this hope, we see that he he really speaks to two points of this hope that are so important for us to understand. The first being that this hope is certain because this hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. If you would turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 6 and you see where else the author highlights this, this experiential truth for every Christian. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author is speaking to why we can be confident that the promises of God will always come true. In other words, why we can be certain that the inheritance that has been promised to us is secure, it cannot be taken away. To argue his point, the author labors to show that God has made this promise not based off of our own performance, but he's made it based off of his own, that is God's character. And as such, this character, and ultimately the work of Christ, guarantees the security of our hope. We see this language used throughout Hebrews chapter 6, but we'll simply pick it up in verse 19. Verse 19 and 20 of Hebrews 6, he says, This hope, so again speaking of the future, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see here in Hebrews chapter 6 and in Hebrews chapter 10, the author speaks of the reason why we can be certain that the hope will remain forever. And why is that? Where is our hope ultimately found in this passage? What's Christ? The reason why you can be certain of your internal inheritance is because the inheritance isn't something that you are holding in this life. The inheritance is something that Christ has already taken on your behalf when he has gone through the veil, when he's entered into that heavenly tabernacle, where he has secured your spot. The picture that comes to my mind as I thought of this this week is perhaps a, an unappealing one, but it's one that, that came nonetheless. But it's a picture I have of when I've seen parents at an amusement park with a child, a child who clearly is trying to get away. And that parent, probably having experienced that quite frequently, has chosen to basically put their child on a leash. Have you seen these leashes? They try to hide them by putting them on cute backpacks that are shaped like a monkey, but we know what it is. It's a dog leash, Right? And, and regardless of how you feel about a parent's choice to do that, we can understand why they do it. Because the kid's going to try to run away. But run and run, run and run as they, try, as they might try, uh, the fact of the matter is that leash is going is to tighten pretty quickly and they'll be dropped and the parent will just drag him back. The parent will keep him by their side and the parent will, with that beaten down look on their face, drag their kid through the amusement park the rest of the day. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is our beaten down parent in this analogy. and This is why I was nervous to use that picture. But it is to say that there is this similar picture where, where Christ has us attached to him. Christ is slowly pulling us back home. He is slowly drawing us in. There is this anchor that is certain in our soul and it is certain because it is ultimately attached to the person Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke of this promise in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. If you were to turn back to John so you can hear this precious promise from the mouth of Christ. John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus has told his disciples that he is about to leave. He has told his disciples of the impending crucifixion. And you can understand the anxiety that this would cause on behalf of the disciples. 
And so to help calm their nerves, in John 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. This is the promise of Christ. Christ has left, having accomplished his work on earth, having risen again, Christ has ascended and he's returned to heaven, but Christ promises us he does so to prepare a place for us. And so even if we cannot see him, even if we cannot touch him, we know that that our place is secure and we know that he someday will return. We know that someday he will pull on that leash and we will be graciously drug home. This is a precious promise. It is the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And as hard as it is to believe this at times, we are also given the gift of Hebrews of understanding, secondly about this hope, that it has also been modeled for us beautifully by former saints. Having discussed this hope in Hebrews 6 and 10, if you move on to Hebrews 11, you have that, that great hall of fame, that hall of faith, in which the author paints this beautiful picture of of the many men and women who have come before us who, despite all odds, despite all difficulties they faced, they remained hopeful. They did so because they understood where their place ultimately was found. Part of that chapter in Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16, we, we find that beautiful picture. There we read, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here the author uses the picture of those escaping Egypt through the exodus. And he he details the reason why they were willing to do it. And and they did it because they understood that their true home wasn't Egypt. Their true home was the promised land. And the picture he paints is is one that's supposed to represent us as well. It's the picture of understanding that we too are sojourners. We too have been rescued out of a domain of darkness. And even though we cannot see the promised land, even though we cannot feel it at this moment, we know it is certain. And so we, we leave our past behind us. And we steadfastly walk forward with that hope that anchors us, that keeps us in Christ, and we eagerly pray for the day in which Jesus will continually pull us in, draw us home, and bring us to our ultimate destiny where we experience the fulfillment of all hope, the fulfillment of all his promises. That future is a beautiful one. The imagery of Hebrews 11 is is precious. This language of, of God not being ashamed to be called their God, what a glorious statement to be said of of so many individuals, most of whom we've never heard of in Hebrews, yet all of whom are are seen as precious and beloved in the eyes of of the Almighty Creator. Believer, your hope is certain. And you must strive to remember, you must strive to to fan a flame once again that fire and see the beauty of Christ and remember that there's something that lies beyond this life. We can oftentimes speak of our glorious future. We can speak of heaven. We can speak of our future home and church. And it's easy to maybe get excited about it here at this moment. But 
But if we're honest, this life has a way of distracting us from that truth, doesn't it? And we as believers can be distracted for, for any number of reasons. For some of us, it's just the sheer busyness of life. And in the midst of carting your kids around to the thousand extracurricular activities they have, in the midst of your countless doctor's appointments, in the midst of the insane amount of hours you are having to work every week to make ends meet, in the midst of your marriage, in the midst of all your many other responsibilities, how much time do you really have to think about heaven? How often do you have the time to really sit down and, and dwell upon the hope of Jesus Christ? Let's face it, if we're honest, oftentimes the thought doesn't cross our mind from the time we leave church on a Sunday to the time we walk back into church the next Sunday. Because life is busy. In the midst of the busyness, it's easy to become focused purely on the next task at hand because we are exhausted. We are stretched thin. And and quite frankly, we can't handle another exhortation, another command, another responsibility. In a similar way, we can become distracted when life is not just busy, but, but life is relatively comfortable. And as to say, we can get into these routines in which things, well, they're, they're predictable. In which we like the way things are going. We like the activities we take our kids to. We like how our family life is going. We like how our job is going. We like where we are financially. We like this life. Perhaps God has blessed you greatly to, to be comfortable. And if so, praise God. But there's a danger to that comfort, isn't there? Because in the midst of that comfort, if we're honest, when we hear of heaven... We hear of spending an eternity elsewhere, we think, well, I kind of like it here, honestly. I don't really have a desire to go anywhere else. And so in the midst of the comfort, we, we fail to think of that hope, and the hope, without us realizing it, continues to dwindle. That, fan, that flame continually dies out. Of course, for many other people, the distraction does not come because life is comfortable, does it? No, the, life, uh, the, the distraction comes because life is, is miserable. Right? Life is miserable for a lot of people, at least in the moment. And I don't know where all of you sit here this morning, but I know just based on sheer numbers, there are a number of you that sit here today on the verge of being completely and utterly broken. Maybe it's a difficult marriage. Maybe it's a sickness you've been dealing with for for years. Maybe it's that you're coming off a year in which you've lost multiple loved ones. Maybe it's a frustrating job. It's an inability to make the ends meet, to to be comfortable at any cost. It's the struggle that comes when you have a child that's wandered away from the faith. It's struggle that comes when you just go through this life that is a dark and cold and lonely existence. As you read through the book of Hebrews, you understand that, of course, that is really the distraction that they are facing. For life is far from comfortable for these Hebrew believers. It's difficult. Again, put yourself in their shoes. They had lived what seems to be a relatively straightforward and predictable life as as Jewish men and women. The Roman state was not directly against them at the moment. And then they hear these beautiful things of Christ and they hear the gospel and they say, all right, sign me up. And the moment they do, life just gets hard. Because now the Roman state is against them. And now many of them have lost the jobs they have. Now many of them have lost family members who were still Jewish and who viewed them as traitors. Putting their faith in Christ had likely brought these individuals into serious suffering. And any time you find yourself in that prolonged state of suffering, inevitably, the hope of Christ begins to diminish. And over time, regardless if it's caused by comfort or busyness or 
or discomfort and suffering over time, we, we unknowingly are drifting further and further away from that fire, further and further away from the warmth of the gospel, further and further away from Christ and the truth of the gospel, further and further away from any focus on the, the eternal hope that lies before us. And before we know it, suddenly we find ourselves in a very dark, in a very cold, in a very lonely place. And for those who find themselves in that state of affairs, to simply be told, hey, remember Christ is great, or hey, remember your hope, well, that can strike you as a bit empty. No, for that individual and for all of us, we need more than just to be reminded on some page of the truth of Jesus. We need also the final exhortation. For having spoken of that reality, having commanded them to to once again look upon the light of Christ, appreciate that light, having told them to once again fan that flame of hope, we come to our third and final command. The one that I think is probably most surprising to us all. It's the command to gather with the people of Christ. We see it in verses 23 and 24. And let us hold, sorry, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the text, this final command might strike you as a bit odd, right? For having said, hey, believer, remember the the beauty of Christ. Look upon the light of Jesus. Hey, believer, remember your eternal destiny. Remember that hope that is tied secure to Christ. Having spoken of that glory, he now says, hey, believer, go to church. What? seems a bit anticlimactic when it comes to the keys to persevering in the faith. Go to church? Gather with other believers? And again, think of it in terms of these Hebrew believers. It's the practice of gathering with other believers that's opening them up to more persecution. But here he's saying, no, 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 you have to keep doing that. No, you have to make that sacrifice, believer. Gather together. It's a, a perhaps a somewhat surprising command, this practice of, of going to church, and yet as you read through Hebrews and read through so much of the New Testament, you see this command is given over and over again. It is an assumed part of the faith of every Christian. The, regularly, the regular gathering in a local church setting. It's spoken of here in Hebrews 10 when he says, let us gather together, let us not forsake the assembling together. You see that, that assembly described a bit more in Hebrews chapter 13 and the closing chapter of Hebrews. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, he once again views it as, as important enough to highlight it in his conclusion. For in Hebrews 13 verse 7, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Later on in Hebrews 13 verse 17, here's the less you know, culturally relevant passage. It says, Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so within the book of Hebrews, we already have a picture of of local assemblies, assemblies that have very specific men, very specific leaders who've been placed over the flock, who are held accountable to take care of the flock, which presumes that they know who their flock is. You have believers commanded to submit to those specific leaders, which means those those believers have clearly a close, a close connection with these leaders. 
You read throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see similar details given of these corporate gatherings, all of which lead us to the conclusion that that what Hebrews 10 is talking about truly is this command of, of a local church setting. It's a practice that was part of the new covenant from the moment Christ leaves and continues to be the case through our time today. From the very beginning, believers were commanded and believers were, it was assumed, regularly gathering together in a small corporate setting to hear from designated leaders who would preach to them, who would teach them. They would submit to those leaders. They would then live life together. They would give of their possessions to one another to support themselves, to support them financially. And they would do this on a very regular basis. This, of course, flies in the face of, I think, what a lot of people assume in our culture today. For we live in a culture, of course, that is a lot more individualistic, don't we? I mean, I've heard for years, since I was a kid, people say things like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but my spirituality is my own business. And so I don't need to go to church. I heard that as a kid from friends of mine. Many people still say that today. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but I'm too busy. Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, but uh, quite frankly, there's just a lot on my plate right now. Quite frankly, going to church is the last thing on my mind. Quite frankly, the people of God have hurt me in the past, and so I, I don't want to go back. And so you have this mentality in which believers assume that, that the practice of their faith really sits on their own authority, that they have the authority to conduct their Christian lives on their own, but the fact of the matter is that's a lie. In his book Christian, on, Christian, on Church Membership, Jonathan Lehman uh, talked about this line. He says, we assume that we have the authority given to us by God to conduct our Christian lives on our own, but we do not. This mentality that we are okay on our own, this mentality that we do not need other believers, this mentality that we do not need to submit ourselves to any local church is a complete lie, and quite frankly, it is a tool of Satan. For he does this to pull you away from that light, to pull you away from the warmth. And as you lie to yourself and say, I'm okay without this, you are gradually entering further and further into that cold, dark reality. But the author of Hebrews says, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. No, for he says, let us then gather together for the sake of what? Again, verse 24, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, here's the key. Think oftentimes when we struggle with church, it's because we fail to understand why churches exist. We live in a culture in which the church is treated as a sort of theological buffet. And you show up because you really like what they're serving that week. You really like that particular pastor. You really like that particular study they're doing. You really like a few people that are there. You really like the specific music. And so you say, okay, I'm I'm going to go. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to enjoy what they have to offer me. It's a sort of lecture hall. And this is the way many people approach church, but that is not the picture that is painted of church in the New Testament. No, as the author says, as we gather together, the purpose is to encourage one another. It's to build each other up. It's to stir one another to love and good deeds. We gather together understanding that we live in a world that is cold and dark. And so as we come together, we come together assuming that we're gathering with brothers and sisters who are struggling very much. We're gathering with brothers and sisters who are cold, 
who feel alone, who are desperate for warmth because God feels impossibly distant from them. And as they come in here, they do not need to simply sit down and sing a few songs and hear a sermon. They need you to speak to them. They need you to pour into their lives. They need you to actively remind them of hope they have in Christ. They need you to offer to help them with the needs they have throughout the week. They need you to acknowledge the suffering that they are facing. This is where so oftentimes I think we as a church fall short. It's an understandable struggle. So oftentimes we show up on a Sunday morning and we plaster a smile on our face. And when someone asks us how we're doing, we say, great, blessed, how are you? In the back of our minds we're thinking, oh dear Lord, please shoot me now, I have no desire to talk to this person. In the back of our minds we're thinking, oh I hope they, they don't really know the truth, I hope they don't realize that my marriage is failing miserably. I hope they don't understand that I am struggling mightily. I hope they don't see that. And we assume that we're called to gather together for the sake of putting a smile on our face, lying about how great we're doing, and then learning a few tidbits, a few fun facts about God. But that's, that's not church as it's described in Scripture. Now, in Scripture, church is that warm fire that greets us every week. A church is the hospital that we enter into having been beaten up and bloodied and bruised throughout the week of war. Church is our weekly refuge in which we meet with other soldiers of Jesus Christ, in which we meet with other people that have been hurt by the world, in which we warm one another and build one another up, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. It's where we fan the flame once again. It's where the beauty of Christ is beheld in a way it's not beheld anywhere else. It is where we then are given our motivation, our desire to go back into that cold and dark place to share the light of Jesus Christ. But when church becomes optional, when church becomes a place where people just pretend that everything is okay, when it becomes just a lecture hall, it loses that power. It loses that gift. And when that happens, as the author of Hebrews is speaking here, the believers find themselves in a very dangerous spot. For as you continue to move on in Hebrews 10 and verse 26, he he speaks of this warning of going on and sinning willfully after receiving knowledge, and he speaks of the judgment that lies ahead. He speaks of the reality of judgment. And he tells these believers, then you do not have the option to just drift away. Oh, you need Christ. Just as you need Christ, you need hope, and just as you need that hope and need to fan a flame, you need church. You need other believers. And so as we close today, as we consider all these things, my prayer is that we might again understand and appreciate just how vital this practice is. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, I hope you feel welcome. But at the same time, I also kind of hope you feel like an outsider. I hope as you look at all of us, you see something that you don't have. I hope that you see a close-knit family that loves each other, that cares for each other, that takes care of each other's needs, that knows each other well. And I hope you see that so that you can see that this is something that you too need. But you must understand that entrance into this family requires your own salvation. And so, if you're here this morning and do not know Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you might repent of your sin. That you might understand that you find yourself in a dark, cold world. And if you do not come to Jesus Christ, if you do not see or receive the life, the light of Jesus, you ultimately will continue to fade into that darkness and find yourself under the wrath of God. And so place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. If you have questions about that, please ask me. 
for my brothers and sisters in Christ. My question to us all is, is honestly, how are we doing with these things? How focused are you on the light of Christ? How mesmerized are you by the gospel? Have you allowed it to die down? Have the distractions of this world, the struggles of the world, caused you to become distracted from your hope, believer? Remember it. And dear believer, let us hear this command to gather with the people of God and let us take seriously what it is we're doing here today. Let us go out of our way, even now, even after the service, to really build and, and, and work in other people's lives. Remembering that they are struggling, remember that they need you. And if you are struggling, speak out to a brother or sister in Christ here. Ask for help, seek encouragement. And my prayer is ultimately that this place might be a place where we find the warmth we so desperately need. It might be a place in which we see faintly the light that is given now in this world and that it might ultimately reflect the greater light that is to come in God's heavenly kingdom. Here in a moment we will have an opportunity to actively encourage one another as believers. For in a moment we will have an opportunity to take part in communion with each other. As we do so, I hope you understand this is not just an individual act by which we pray a little prayer to Jesus and by which we find an individual encouragement. No, there's a reason why we do it as a corporate body. We do it so that as we look around this room, we see, oh, they too have been saved by Jesus Christ. They too have been brought to Jesus Christ. They too are my brother or sister. And so as we do so, let us remember that encouragement. To help us think of that, let me read from Romans. Romans chapter 12. And with this, I'll close this in prayer as the band comes up and we will take part in communion. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, speaking of the life that we're to live together. Paul there says, in a similar fashion to Hebrews, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Here in a moment as we take part in communion, something that is open to all believers and something you're encouraged to come take, I pray that we do this with the words of Hebrews and the words of Romans in mind. Might we do this understanding that there are many here who celebrate, but there are also many here amongst us who are weeping. Might we take communion with them in mind and might we seek out and pray that God keeps us aware of those struggles, gives us an awareness of one another, and might we do it corporately as the body of Christ. That being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, as we consider what we do here again, it is so easy to overlook it. It is so easy to, to cheapen the experience that has been given to us. God, all of us are prone to come to church on any given Sunday, desperately wanting to impress those around us, desperately wanting to keep to ourselves, for that is our sinful flesh. But God, I pray that you break us of that pride. I pray that we understand that we are not the only ones in need, we are not the only ones struggling, but we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who face similar struggles. God, I praise you for the fact that there are some here today who come rejoicing in you, who come celebrating the life you've given them, God, and might they use that celebration, use that joy to be an encouragement to others. They recognize that joy is something that other people so desperately need. 
God, might we reflect the community that is commanded in Hebrews, the community that is commanded throughout all of Scripture. And as we do so, Lord, might we not only encourage one another, God, but might we be a light to the world around us, a world that is still in darkness. As they look to us, God, might they see your light reflected, might they feel the warmth that is found only in Jesus Christ. And might they be attracted to the gospel, God. Be with us now as we take part in this corporate event of communion. Might it too be an encouragement to us, God. Might it be a reminder of how blessed we are, God, and a reminder of how we are all in this together. We praise you and we pray all these things. In your precious, Jesus, in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, amen.